Welcome to another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. You know, in my neighborhood, there's a sign on one of the houses, in front of one of the houses, and it says, in this house, we believe love is love, black lives matter, science is real, women's rights are human rights, etc. Maybe you've seen something like that. So I was uh, really intrigued when I found a book called The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin, and I've already done a podcast on one of those claims. I wanted to take a chapter out of her book called uh, Women's Rights or Human Rights and talk about that one. And she mentions a book that came out, and I haven't read it yet, but I remember it really uh, stirred up a lot of controversy. It was called The Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood wrote this. And it imagined that the United States got taken over by a pseudo-Christian sect. And all the women are good for is to be basically barefoot and pregnant. And uh, so it suggested that you get women under some kind of religion like Christianity and they lose all their rights. And things like a banning of abortion, that would be an assertion of male control over female bodies over and over. And the, the main message that comes out of the movie and things that we hear in our society these days is that Christianity is bad for women's rights. So this chapter of the book McLaughlin says the story is wrong. She says, in fact, without the Bible, there's no basis for women's rights. And the way Jesus treated women, that changed their status forever. And she said the church has always been disproportionately female and that rather than benefiting women, the sexual revolution in the 60s handed women something terrible. And then finally, and remember this is kind of an overview of the chapter, she says, Far from being the central plank of women's rights, abortion rots that foundation. So that's interesting. Okay, so let's pick up. Uh, she starts in Genesis. God creates humans, male and female. And he blesses these people, tells them to be fruitful and multiply and rule his creation as his deputies. So to be a woman, the way they're starting the, the way she's starting this chapter off is, if you're a woman, you're first and foremost made in the image of God. Now, that's pretty powerful. And the equality, she says, about the sexes there is reinforced when the creation of humans is retold in Genesis 2. God makes the man first, but says it's not good for him to be alone and plans to make a helper fit for him. Now, of course, today we think of that word helper, and I do this with my Bible as literature class. You think of helper like the husband comes home, he's had a hard day at work, and the wife bustles to the door, and she's got her feather duster in her hand. She's been cleaning all day. And she says, oh, sit down, dear. You must be tired. Let me go get you something to drink. Here, put your shoes away. I'll get your slippers. Oh, 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 you know, that kind of helper. And she says, yeah, that sounds demeaning to us. But she said, in the rest of the Bible, it usually describes God himself. So it's not inferiority. And I think that's so true. In fact, I heard uh, they said a better translation of that word helper would be ally. And you think about going to war, you want an ally who's strong and will be as a huge help to you. And so God himself is called a helper. So that's a lot different than people think that's going on in the Genesis story. She says, you know, if evolution is the only origin story, if that's true, then we don't have any natural rights. We're just like chimps and hyenas and spiders, they don't have any rights. Well, all we have is the strong triumphing over the weak. And since men are stronger than women, then how can we say women are equal to men? And if we're 
here, women are only here to propagate DNA, then how can you say rape is wrong? She said, you know, feminists object to women being treated like wombs on legs, valued only for reproductive power. But if evolution is the only origin of story, that's exactly what women are. They're just a method, a means to get DNA to, into the next generation. Not exactly uh, a real wonderful piece of dignity there. Her next section talks about how Christian revolution remade the whole world. And she quotes from a man named uh, Holland. First name is Tom. Tom Holland, he's a historian. And he said when he was young, he didn't believe in the Bible. He stopped believing when he was young. He got attracted to Greek and Roman gods. But after years of research as a historian, he concluded even secular Westerners are deeply shaped by Christianity. And he said, especially when you talk about gender and sexuality, he says that depends on Christian ideas. And here's the quote from Holland. I think it's worth uh, having it here. That every human is possessed and equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption. What's the assumption? That everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle, well, it wasn't the French Revolution, it wasn't the Declaration of Independence, it wasn't the Enlightenment. Where did the idea come from that people had inherent worth, everyone? It came from the Bible. Interesting. So they, she goes on to say that uh, women being weaker, that wasn't a license to get dominated. It was to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And you see that in 1 Peter 3, 7. Roman families married off their prepubescent daughters. Christian women were allowed to marry later. A woman whose husband had died was affirmed and remaining single, but free to marry any man she wished, as long as he belonged to Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 7. So it says, no wonder Christianity was so attractive to women. Jesus had changed everything, and that's the next section of her book. Jesus' shocking relationship with women. Wow, really? Yeah, it's all through the New Testament. The longest conversation Jesus had with any individual was with that Samaritan woman, and that was a woman of ill repute, but that wasn't uh, the only time. He repeatedly welcomed women that those contemporaries of his despised. A sinful woman comes in while he's dining at a Pharisee's house. She weeps on Jesus' feet and wipes them. And the Pharisee, of course, was just appalled. Ah, says if this man was a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this was. She's a sinner. But Jesus turned the tables on the host and he affirmed this woman as an example of love. He welcomed women despite sexual sinners, despised the sexual sinners. He he welcomed women deemed unclean. One time he was on his way to heal a girl and a woman who'd had 12 years of menstrual bleeding, figured if she could just touch the fringe of his clothes, she'd be made well. And she was right, but Jesus didn't just move on. He had her come forward and he commended her faith. So over and over again, we see Jesus making time for women. He treated them with care. He treated them with respect. In Luke's gospel, women are often compared with men. And if there is a contrast, women ended up looking better than men did. So that was surprising. Think about uh, meeting Mary and Martha. They're in the book of Luke. Jesus is at their house. Martha's busy serving, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet learning. And Martha, of course, gets upset, and she says, Hey, Jesus, tell Mary she should be helping serving too. 
But what did Jesus say? This is Luke 10. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Well, that was interesting, because in a culture where women were expected to serve, not to learn, Jesus affirms Mary's learning. That's good, Jesus said. Now, how about the early church? Let's move along in history. What does McLaughlin say? Well, in the early 2nd century, there's a Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, and he said, uh, how are we going to handle these Christians? He said it was like a disease. Christianity was spreading like a contagion. And Pliny says many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes were at risk of becoming Christians. So Pliny tortured two female slaves who were called deaconesses. And so it says, from other accounts of early Christianity, these female slaves seem representative. In fact, the, the guess is now among historians that there are probably twice as many women in the early church as men, and many of them were slaves. In fact, one second century Greek philosopher says, Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. So they were mocked for having so many women. It says women tend probably to be more religious than men are, but she says, uh, she being McLaughlin, says the effect is more pronounced with Christianity. All around the world, women are more likely to identify as Christians, and Christian women are more likely to attend church and pray. So if it's so terrible for women, why are women joining? Why are women being part of it? Next section of her chapter here, Christianity and Feminism. She says, uh, of course, feminism is a real charged and changing term. She said many today say it involves abortion. Of course, Christianity is, uh, is going to oppose that. But what's the real definition of feminism? The theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes and organized activity that's on the behalf of women's rights. So it says there have been many things that have been fought for under the banner of feminism that Christians can and should affirm. You know, women's right to vote, to hold property, to be paid the same as a man for doing the same job. It says, in fact, many of the early feminists, McLaughlin argues, abdicated for women's rights because they were Christian. So she says, I'm happy to call myself a feminist, even if I have to explain what I do and I don't mean. I do believe women are equal to men. I should, she says, I believe we should have Many opportunities have historically been denied to us, and we should be paid the same salary for the same work. But she says instead of seeing abortion rights as a central plank for the feminist structure, she thinks its central plank should be the cross. She references Paul here who calls husbands to sacrifice for the wives. That's in Ephesians. He said they should sacrifice themselves like Jesus did on the cross. And she says, you know, if you make husbands and wives interchangeable, you, you lose the gospel message that Mary, marriage is designed to preach. And she said, we do violence to the word of life to which women have been drawn for millennia. She said, of course, men have failed to live up to this vision. They've used ideas in the Bible to subjugate, subjugate and denigrate women. And she said, unfortunately, some are still doing it. But she said, uh, that's unfair. She said, uh, the failure of Christian husbands to learn, and to learn and to serve and to love their wives. That comes from ignoring what the Bible really says. So I like that. The Bible upholds women, and when men don't do that, when they treat them badly, they're going against the Bible, not with the Bible. All right, so uh, let's go to a section here. I'm moving along here. What about the fallout? Oh, wait a minute. I want to do one more part here. She talks about 
the value of women. And uh, she mentions the ideal wife that's described in Proverbs 31. I think that is interesting. If you have a chance, read that. It's the ideal wife. Uh, again, I, I've gone through that when I teach the Bible as literature. In the original Hebrew, if you do Proverbs 31, the first verse starts with the first letter of the, of the Hebrew alphabet. The second verse starts with the second letter. So basically, it's like A to Z. And so what the writer of Proverbs is saying is the ideal wife is from A to Z, everything about her. And you know, there's so much there about her value as an economic powerhouse. Now, she makes money from her work outside the home. So kind of interesting there. Anyway, let's move to the last section of the chapter here where he's talking about the sexual, or she's talking about the sexual revolution. She said, you know, we got sold that that was going to be the liberation of women that uh, men had been finding ways to sneak around marriage, and now with the pill, women could sneak around just as well. And she says, well, the last 60 years, women have gained freedom and opportunities, but she says, you know what's happened? The, their self-reported happiness has declined. Why? She said part of the reason is that you have commitment-free sex being offered today, but it's, it's terrible. She talks about stable marriage correlates with mental and physical health benefits for men and women. Let me stop here for just a second. The Bible is often shown uh, to be, or, or people see it as a place for people to be unhappy. It's a bunch of rules. It makes people miserable. And yet, if you really take a look, if people follow biblical principles, we're made in a particular way by God. He knows what's best for us. And so you start finding studies showing that people who do follow the biblical pattern for life end up happier and longer lived. So here we go. Stable marriage, one more time, she says, correlates with mental and physical health benefits for men and women. She's got all sorts of uh, footnotes to, to prove that. She said, being married seems to be a particularly significant factor in women's happiness. And she says, many studies have shown that for women in particular, the more sexual partners they have, the worse mental health they have. Higher levels of sadness, suicidal ideas, depression, drug abuse. She said that isn't because women are uninterested in sex. Married women are experiencing more and better sex than their unmarried peers do. Isn't that interesting? She said there was a recent study that found that women in highly religious marriages, now what does that mean? Well, couples that pray together and read scripture and attend church. So, Women in a highly religious marriage were twice as likely as secular peers to say they were satisfied with their sexual relationship. Isn't that interesting? So women in a committed religious Christian marriage are doing far better as far as sexuality goes than women who are not. Um, she said in 2016, there was a study of women in America and uh, found that highly religious women married to a highly religious men agreed with this statement. It's usually better for everyone involved if the father takes the lead in working outside the home and the mother takes the lead in caring for the home and family. Those ended up being the happiest wives. So those traditional roles that feminists have poo-pooed all these years, they're finding out it's actually made women happier and more content because the man is out doing whatever the job is and the woman is taking care of the kids. How about this one? Um, there was a survey. Let's see. This is in 2019. There was a survey that weekly church attendance 
was associated with better mental health and lower rates of suicide. And she said it was a hugely big uh, difference. It says women who attended religious services weekly were 68% less likely to die what they call deaths of despair, that'd be suicide or drug overdose or alcohol, than people who had never attended at all. Okay, let me say that one, one more time. Women who attended religious services weekly were almost 70% less likely to die of a death of despair. So I will end at that point. The chapter goes on a little bit. She does talk about abortion, but just because of time, uh, I will cut it off at this point. So again, the book is called The Secular Creed. It takes on five different claims that we hear today a lot. One is Black Lives Matter. The second, Love is Love. Uh, women's rights or human's rights. She takes on the transgender issue and the gay rights issue. So this is a, a book that's up to date, uh, right on the, the things that we hear about all the time. It came out in 2021, so it's pretty new. And I would highly recommend it. It's short but punchy, a lot of good material. Well, have a good rest of your day, and thanks for listening.